hear what he said? I'll repeat a few things because it's very powerful. You know, he's a MVP of Los Angeles Rams. He said God spoke and he believed. God told him he would win the Super Bowl and be the MVP. He played knowing his worth was in God, on the, not what was on the field. It was written. He knew the battle was already won, but he still had to come out and do his part. He still had to go out and fight. He still he couldn't sit on the sidelines drinking Gatorade and expect to win the MVP or to win the Super Bowl. He came out and did his part. You know, when Jesus went to this cross, he's not there anymore. He went down to hell. He took the keys away from Satan. He bopped them in the head. And he said, I'm taking these keys. I'm going home. And these people are going to have victory in Jesus. They're going to have a victory because I came down and I gave my life. And he said, it is finished. The tomb's empty. He was raised from the dead. He conquered death. If you guys want your life back, if we want our life back, if we want to be free from sin, we want to be free from drugs, alcohol, mental abuse, whatever it is, go before the cross. Go before the cross. Because the victory is in Jesus. When you wake up in the morning, you get up with the victory, knowing that Jesus died on the cross, the victory is already won. You just have to go get it. Amen. Come on, I can't hear you. The victory's already won. Jesus won. So when you get up and you sing the rest of the service, you remember that Jesus died on the cross, he conquered death, and it's all for you. That's probably the first and only time that Los Angeles Rams will ever be mentioned in this service. <laughs> I had to pray this morning really hard to let Troy do that. <laughs> any other team, Lord, any other team. <laughs> you know, one of the, I think the most powerful statement in that whole thing of what Cup said, and I am a fan of Cup. He's, he is a, he's not one of those that thinks God and a fake Christian. He's a, he's a Christ follower. He said, I get to play from victory, not for victory. And if there's a theme for the church... We're getting ready to sing about joy. You, you know the secret to joy in the life of a Christian? When we learn we don't have to live for victory. At the cause of the cross that Troy just mentioned, we get to live from victory. Mm. All right, I'm not going to say anything else. Let's stand. Let's sing. Let's sing as if we're a people that's singing from victory this morning. Amen. Taking time when you saw the crowds, not to roll your eyes, but to sit down begin to speak to them what we know is the Sermon on the Mount that gives us life. And as we begin to look at that, God, renew us in life. Renew us in you. In Jesus' name we pray. I just feel like over the last four, five, six weeks, um, something has been elevated in this room. <laughs> I've always enjoyed worshiping with my church family, but something over the last month or so and, uh, and I've talked to some people, other people feel that too. I just feel like maybe we're getting up earlier and we're coming more prepared, you know, I don't know, but it just feels like we're engaging more in worship to our king than we ever have. And I don't want us to lose that. In fact, let's just keep elevating that thing, all right? I want to start our time by just making this statement. It's absolutely true. You won't convince me it's not. I believe there's only two types of people in this world. 
Everybody say two. There are only two types of people in this world. And if that's true, there are only two types of people in this room. You see, I think we live in a world that tr- it, it has this desire, if you will, to divide us by our economic status, by our political views, hello, by our opinions of pandemics and mandates, uh, by the color of our skin, and that list goes on, right? We can just keep naming things that we, the culture tries to divide us on. But the Bible, I think, that's kind of where we land. The Bible makes it very clear that there are only two types of people and that one day Jesus himself will do the dividing. Those who belong to the kingdom of the world and those who belong to the kingdom of heaven. And those are backwards. So if I keep pointing over here talking about the kingdom of heaven, it's because I kept saying, put the kingdom of heaven on the right. Put the kingdom of heaven on the right. (laughs) On judgment day, which is a day that the Bible describes as a day that every one of us is going to stand before a holy God and the only thing that will matter on judgment day is which one of these seats did we place our hope, trust, and faith in. That's it. It's not gonna matter how loud you sang those last four songs. It's not gonna matter how many times in a row you came to church or how many Bible verses you memorized, all that's gonna matter on that day, standing before God is which kingdom did you belong to? In Matthew chapter four, Jesus starts his ministry by preaching. That's what he does. We read that just a few weeks ago. And here's the bulk of his message. It's in Matthew 4, 17. Jesus is preaching, repent of your sins and turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is near. You see, Jesus came to introduce to us a brand new world, a spiritual world, a heavenly kingdom, and he lays out the conditions to live within his kingdom. They're quite simple and yet complex. To sit in this seat, you have to repent of your sins and turn to God. You must acknowledge that you are a sinner and that God through Jesus is our only rescue from sin and our only deliverer from this world to this world. This seat requires a turning from ourselves and a turning to God. It is a displacing of all the dependency upon ourselves, and it's a turning to a holy God. That is the sermon Jesus has come to preach. And for the next three chapters of Matthew, we get Jesus' sermon. Have you ever imagined what, what would Jesus preach? Man, wouldn't it be cool if Rick sat down and Jesus showed up and he preached the sermon? I guarantee you this place would be full. This is what he'd preach. This is Jesus, this is his sermon, right? We know it is a sermon on the mount. This is Jesus' sermon to his disciples, teaching them what it truly looks like to, to belong to this chair, to sit here. And as a Christian, we must desire to be more and more like Christ. And these next three chapters of Matthew is where we see what that looks like. 
Last week, we looked at verses one and two of chapter five. It says, one day as, as Jesus saw the crowds gathering, and why wouldn't they? Jesus had just held everybody that had any sickness around him in chapter four. Like, hey, bring them all. And he just kept healing them all. And so obviously there's a crowd. And when he saw the crowd, it says, Jesus went up on the mountainside and he sat down and his disciples gathered around him and he began to teach them. And that's kind of just where we ended last week. On the one hand, Jesus saw the crowd and he knew that there, and there, there was a great need and, and his mission and this need was much greater than he would accomplish on his own. So he equipped his disciples to carry on his kingdom work, even after his death, to the ends of the earth. That's why we're here today. However, I think it would be foolish uh, to imagine just Jesus and just on this mountain. I think, it's, I think it's wrong for us to imagine up on this mountainside, there's Jesus sitting down and it's just this few handpicked so far disciples. That's it. Nobody else is there because... Um, the crowd is already there in the context in chapter four. They don't just go away. They're still pressing in, trying to experience Jesus. And so even, I mean, you know how crowds are, uh, Black Friday, hello. You can put all kinds of rules up about how you are to behave. Don't come past this point. But I'm telling you, when there's a crowd and they want something, you can't. So Jesus could have said, you stay right here. I'm gonna go up here and teach. No, no, no. They, they, they came along to listen and to hear. And I just want you to understand that the crowd in chapter four hasn't disappeared here in chapter five. It's not Jesus and just a few of his disciples. And in a few minutes, he'll come back down the mountain and he'll re-engage with the crowd. That's not what's happening here. And the reason why we know that to be sure is because at the end of the sermon, when Jesus gives his benediction, it says in chapter seven, verse 28, at the end, the crowds were amazed at his teachings. So they're there, they're present. And I wanted to make sure I say that because no matter what chair you're in this morning, Whatever chair represents where you're at right now in your life, you are welcomed here. You belong here. And this series is for you because if you are here this morning, great. Lean in, learn more, repent more, commit more to follow Jesus more with greater eagerness and courage. But if you're here this morning, if this is where you're at, we invite you to just be open to the teaching of Jesus. Be open to the spirit of God revealing himself. Come on, my suspicions is if you're here, it's because you're probably struggling to believe this is true. And so it's not my job to try to convince you that this is better or that it's true. Um, I'm just going to pray that if this is where you're at this morning, be open to this over the next several weeks, whatever Jesus has to say to us. And if by the grace of God, the truth is revealed to you, embrace it, repent, turn to God. But whether you do or not, you're welcome here because the crowds were welcomed with Jesus. And we welcome people that Jesus welcomed. We accept people that Jesus Accepted. The only responsibility that any of us have here this morning is to hear from Jesus and then decide which kingdom do I belong to. That's it. And our hope and prayer is that we all sit here, the kingdom of heaven. But the reality is we probably won't because the path to this kingdom is narrow and the Bible says very few find it. So for the next 10 verses, 
Uh, we're not gonna get through them all today. In fact, I'm just breathing, we're just getting through one because it took me a little while to set this up. But the next 10 verses are kind of famous within the Sermon of the Mount because they're known as the, the Beatitudes. Yeah, they have their own little subtitle. And this is Jesus. The Beatitudes is Jesus literally teaching us what is needed to truly be happy and content in the here and now as citizens of heaven, even though we are in, but not of this world, right? So how do we be happy? How do we be blessed? And that's what Jesus is about to get into. And the reason why I can't go into a bunch of them is because I need to lay a foundation here. And there's four things. There's just four general lessons that I want us to, to draw really quickly before we jump into the Beatitudes. Here's the first one. As we read these Beatitudes, we must believe that Jesus is describing what every Christian was meant to be, okay? Here's what I mean by that. This list of Beatitudes is not for the exceptional or the elite of the church. This is a list for anyone claiming to pledge allegiance to this kingdom. You wanna belong to this chair, these are the attitudes, the beatitudes that must be present in our lives. Number two, all Christians are meant to manifest all of these characteristics. Not only are they meant for every Christian, but they are necessary for every Christian. Every Christian is meant for all of them to manifest all of them, all of the time. And we can also agree that some of these beatitudes will be more manifest in us than others. But that's not the doing of the Lord. That's the doing of a little of this still in us, even though we belong to this kingdom. We are not deceived to think that as we rest in God's kingdom, that there is still not residue from our previous kingdom lurking. We have been saved from the penalty of sin and we are being saved. That's what sanctification is about. We're being saved from the power of sin. And one day we'll be saved from the very presence of sin, right? But right now there is constant tension between these two kingdoms as one is always trying to draw us away from the other. The Spirit of God is always trying to draw us from the world to his kingdom. And look, for us, for us who belong to this kingdom, the enemy is always, we saw it in chapter four with Jesus and the devil. The one who holds this kingdom, right, was being tempted by the enemy, trying to lure him away. It's that same tension in our life every single day. Point three, none of these descriptions that Jesus is about to give us come natural to us. Everything natural in us is birthed in this kingdom. So when you say something, you go, why did I say that? I can go, it's natural. Why do I think such bad things about that person? <laughs> why do I keep putting my foot in my... Why did I go there? Each of these descriptions that Jesus is about to give, uh, about to give us are wholly a disposition which is produced by grace alone and through the operation of the Holy Spirit alone within us. In other words, you cannot conform to these beatitudes apart from God's working in you. And that should be a bit comforting because this series cannot be a 
a try harder, do better series. Um, that would assume that we can achieve to God's standard of living by our own works. And the point of the gospel is that Jesus had to come and do for us what we could not do on our own and in our own power. Which means the work is left to God's spirit in us, not only declaring that every Christian is meant to be like this, but by the grace of God and our confidence in him alone, we can and will be like this that Jesus is about to give us. Last point, and then we'll jump in. What Jesus is about to teach over the next three chapters is the essential difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. It is a hard line that Jesus has drawn in the sand, and the church has been trying to blur that line ever since Jesus drew the line. You don't have to look past the original disciples. They were always trying to blur the line a little bit of where Jesus said, nope, this is of the kingdom of God, and this is not. These two chairs represent two entirely different realms and the greatest danger for the church today is the demonic attempt in mixing these two realms, like a, a perfect blend. We don't wanna be too extreme in either one. We need a good, healthy blend, and that is not of God. Jesus will teach us in the weeks to come that to be fully alive in one of these worlds, you have to be fully dead to the other. With all that said, as the foundation of what's to come, I do feel just a bit of weightiness and seriousness of this text. And so we're jumping in here, verse three, but can, before we do, let's just, let's just pray and then, and then we'll get after it. Father, may we see the words that you're about to preach to us through Jesus. May, may we see your words today with fresh eyes and hear your teaching with attentive hearts and responsive hearts. Uh, attentive ears and responsive hearts. Show us how to reflect you better in the world that we live in. Father, as we study the Sermon on the Mount, as we study the Beatitudes, God, may we as your people just constantly pray less of us, less of us, less of us, and more of you. Less of this world's kingdom and more of your kingdom reflecting in and through us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So at the end of verse two, Jesus begins to teach, and then verse three, this is it. This is all we're gonna get through today. Jesus begins preaching by saying, God blesses those who are poor. The New Living Translation leaves out this. I'm go I added it in parentheses because it's in all other translations. God blesses those who are poor in spirit. The reason why the New Living lives it out because it actually describes that next line is not in most translations, but describes the poor in spirit and realize their need for him. So God blesses those who are poor in spirit and realize their need for him for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. So each beatitude that we're gonna look, like is look at is, is like twofold. There is a character trait of the beatitude and then there's this, the reward of the beatitude. If, if you are this, then you get to experience happiness and, and, and blessedness because of you resting in this. And so here Jesus says, blessed are or happy are those who are poor in spirit. Why? Because they will inherit the kingdom of heaven. So here's the question that we must answer today. What is poverty of spirit? 
right? What is poverty of spirit? Jesus is not talking financial or materialistic poverty. He is not referring to a lack of spiritual awareness. The expression itself, poor in spirit, seems to probably come from the Old Testament. Some of the various Hebrew words for poor can also be translated as lowly or humble, which both of those words fit in the context here of what Jesus is teaching. In fact, D.A. Carson says, I love this, poverty of spirit is the personal acknowledgement of our spiritual bankruptcy. It's a good definition. It is our confession that we are sinful and rebellious and utterly without moral virtue adequate to commend us to God. Poverty of spirit then means we have nothing of value in and of ourselves to bring to the table for God. It is our general but constant confession of our deepest need for him, for him. It is, my, it is, by the way, no accident that Jesus starts here in this sermon because I believe this beatitude is the key to all of the other beatitudes and it's the key to the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is gonna get into some really hard teachings in this sermon, some really hard lines in the sand. And I'm telling you, if we don't come poor in spirit, humble, lowly, realizing the only reason we get to sit here is because of Jesus. We bring nothing to the table. Then we will thumb our nose at some of the things Jesus will teach. This is the foundation upon which Jesus builds his entire sermon. The very first thing Jesus teaches us about the kingdom is that we don't have the spiritual resources to enter it. We cannot fulfill God's standards here because left to ourselves, we have no moral worth. Our first step into the kingdom of God is our acknowledgement of our spiritual bankruptcy and the emptying of ourselves, of our self-righteousness, of our self-esteem, of our personal vain glory. There is no entry into the kingdom of heaven apart from that. Once emptied of these things, once emptied of ourselves, then we are ready to be filled with Christ. What Jesus is after here is ultimately our attitude towards ourself. We're gonna unpack that just in a minute. Because, and here's why, this is why Jesus is, he's starting with, hey, I need you to kind of turn your attention to yourself for a moment. This, this is why Jesus is doing this. Because he knows, he knew then and he knows now that we have a culture, the culture of this world. The principle is dominated in this idea, you know this, express yourself. It's this idea, it's just this principle that you deserve to be happy, express yourself, believe in yourself, be self-confident, be self-assured, be self-reliant. But the principle of God's kingdom is, if you feel anything in the presence of God other than total poverty of spirit, you probably haven't seen God. That is the meaning of this beatitude. In Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15, 
Listen to this. The high and lofty one who lives in eternity, the holy one says this. I live in the high and holy place with those whose spirits are contrite and humble. I restore the crushed spirit of the humble and revive the courage of those with repentive hearts. And then we have endless examples of this throughout both the Old and New Testaments of Scripture. It's a picture of Gideon in Judges chapter 6. Just going to put this on the screen in Judges chapter 6, verse 12, it says this. The angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and said, mighty, mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all of this happened to us? What's happened? He explains it. Where are all the miracles of our ancestors who told us that, that all the ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord brought us up out of Egypt, but now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites? By the way, if you want to read just a little early in chapter six, God says exactly why they're back in the place that they're in. It's because they did the same thing that the original children of Israel had done. Then the Lord turned to him and said, go with the strength that you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. It's like Moses all over again. God says, I'm sending you. But Lord, Gideon replied, how can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh. And I am the least of my tribe. We're the smallest and weakest tribe. And I am the smallest and weakest of my tribe. That's a picture of poverty of spirit. Angel shows up and goes, Mighty hero of God. Uh-uh, I know God. I've heard the stories of God. I'm, I'm no hero of God. This wasn't some false humility on Gideon's part. The thought of greatness and honor was too incredible for him to even imagine. This, this idea... This picture of uh, poverty of spirit is the picture of Moses again in Exodus 3 when he felt this deep unworthiness of any task that God laid out before him because Moses was fully aware of his insufficiency and inadequacy. Read the debate, or debate read the argument, the, 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 the pushback between God and Moses. Moses, go. I can't. Yes, you can. I'll go. I can't talk. This is back and forth. He's just, Moses, in the presence of the burning, the presence of God through the burning bush, is just being reminded of all of his insufficiencies and inadequacies. And the truth is, when we're in the presence of God, that is what we should be reminded of. This is the picture of David in his prayer in 2 Samuel when he prayed, who am I, O sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? This is Isaiah chapter six. Jeff will put it on the screen. We see this is, this is, man, this is so good. We see it with Isaiah in the year that King Isaiah died when he says, I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne and the train of his robe filled the temple, attending him were mighty seraphims, each having six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. With two, they flew. They were calling out to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations and the entire building was filled with smoke. Then I said, it's over. <laughs> Woe is me, I am doomed, I am a sinful man, I have filthy lips, my people have filthy lips. This is what happens when we get into the presence of God, we're reminded we have no place in his presence. 
You see it perfectly in the New Testament as well. What about the Apostle Peter, who was naturally aggressive and self-assertive and self-confident? Peter would be the typical modern-day poster child for the kingdom of the world. <laughs> and yet, when he finally sees Jesus for who he really is, he falls on his knees in Luke 5, 8, and he says, oh, Lord, please leave me. I am such a sinful man. Get away. Don't look at me. What about Paul? A man with obvious bold and great leadership skills, great powers, and as a natural man with these such abilities, he's, he would be aware, aware of his abilities. I think a lot of Paul's struggle, even some of the, the texts that we read, is him struggling with, he knows, he knows that he's got some boldness and he's got some skill. And so maybe that he's struggling with some pride, but listen to this in Philippians 3. He goes, though I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason to have confidence in their own efforts, I have more. Paul said, I'll go toe-to-toe -to -toe with anybody. If you want to start talking lineage and you want to start talking education and you want to start talking about resume, toe-to-toe. -to -toe. I'll out-resume anybody. That's what he's saying in this text. And he goes through some of that resume. He says, I was so zealous at the end of this to persecute the church. For righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. But look at this. I once thought all of these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless. Worthless is kind. Most translations say poop. Well, dung, it's a little bit more prettied up. That's what Paul says. My whole resume, which I used to find all of my identity in, that I could go head-to-head, -head, toe toe-to-toe against anybody, nobody. If anybody had a right to boast, I have a right to boast. Oh, but now I've, what changed? Uh, the, the Damascus Road, <laughs> his way to persecute more Christians. He has an encounter with Jesus, and in a moment, everything that he had boasted in, he realizes, dung. Perhaps the parable that best communicates the poor in spirit is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Find this in Luke 18, but just listen to this parable Jesus told. Jesus told this story, and the reason why he did is because he's, look who he's with. He's he tells the story to some who had great confidence in their own self-righteousness, and they scorned everyone else. So he says, hey guys, listen, I got a story. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not like other people. I'm thankful, God, that I'm not like the cheaters and the sinners and the adulterers. I'm certainly not like the tax collector over there. I fast twice a week, I give a tenth of my income. Jesus says, but from a distance, there's the tax collector. He's praying too. Although he's not even looking to the heavens to pray. You know, the Pharisees making a big deal about it. It's like a, it's like a performance, man. It's beautiful. Oh, God, thank you. That I'm not like these heathens. <laughs> the tax collector won't even look up in his prayers. 
He's just standing there beating his chest in this story. Oh, God, be merciful to me. For I'm a sinner. I can't look. I'm a sinner. And here's how Jesus finishes that story. I tell you the truth. This sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Perhaps our greatest example of poor in spirit comes from Jesus himself. Our Lord took upon himself the likeness of man. He became a servant to us. Though he was equal with God, he did not cling to his Godhead. Think about that for a moment. God's status in his back pocket. And here are the words of Jesus. John 14, 10. Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak are not my own. Our king is walking. God of the world, God of the universe is walking among us with human flesh on it. And he's saying, these are the words of my father. And, and then it gets worse. In John 5, he says this, I can do nothing on my own. Jesus said that. I can do nothing on my own. Later in that same verse, he goes, because I carry out the will of the one who sent me, not my own will. And Jesus here is fully practicing in his ministry, being poor in spirit and dependent upon his heavenly father. And we see that constantly through his prayer life. He's constantly getting alone with his father, Jesus who had every right to grasp his status as God, is separating himself, saying, God, God, give me strength today. God, it's not my work. It's your, God, it's not my words. It's your words. I can't do this without you. I'm going to go to them and John and say, you can't do this without me, but God, they need to see I can't do this without you. Our, our Lord that's what he's saying in the text. And then I think it's in this context that Paul in Philippians 2 says, you must have the same attitude as Christ. That if, if Jesus was willing to set the example of poverty in spirit by giving up every right he had and become a servant, and he didn't make anything upon this, on this earth about him but his heavenly father, then we've got to have the same mind about ourselves. That is the meaning of being poor in spirit. It means a complete absence of pride and self-assurance and self-reliance. It means a consciousness that we are nothing in the presence of God. It is nothing then that we can produce and it's nothing that we can do of ourselves. It is just this tremendous awareness of our utter nothingness as we come face to face with God. We don't discover this kingdom without First, having a woe is me moment. None of us, none of us belong to this kingdom that have not had a get away from me. I am a sinful person. A woe is me. I am a man or woe man of unclean lips and unclean hands and unclean eyes and unclean hearts. So how does one become or remain poor in spirit? The answer clearly isn't found from within. 
In fact, the only way to experience being poorer in spirit is to look to God. When Jesus' original disciples that he's teaching here in this context, when they would begin to take their eyes off Jesus and begin looking at each other, the conversation would shift. The conversation would go, no, I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. No, I'm gonna get to see closest to Jesus. <laughs> and then they would get their eyes back on Jesus and they would see him doing a, 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 they, they would see him doing a miracle and they'd go, Jesus, teach us. Teach us to have better faith. They would hear Jesus pray and they'd go, Jesus, Teach us to pray like that. Because nothing, because something about looking to Jesus reveals our weaknesses and our inadequacies. So how do we become a remain poor in spirit? We look to God. We read this book about him. We read his law. We read about Jesus through the gospels. We contemplate standing before him one day. The more we look at God, the more hopeless we feel about ourselves. We look to God and when you have looked long and hard at God, keep looking. Keep looking. Keep your eyes fixed upon him. It's, the only, it's only in his presence that we can become poor in spirit. It's only before him we are reminded of our spiritual bankruptcy and our dire need of him. If we try to sit in this chair and we don't keep our eyes on God, we get confused and we get dangerous. For us that belong to the kingdom of heaven, our eyes must stay on the king. And as our eyes stay on the king, we're reminded of his holiness. And as long as we keep in view of his holiness, we keep being reminded of our insufficiencies and our inadequacies. We have nothing to bring to the table. We have nothing to offer. I love the words of this song. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. John Piper summarizes this verse well in closing, and it's a rather long quote, but it was good enough. I wanted to share it. And I don't share a lot um, from John, but I, this, was, this was really good. Would you just listen to this? This is John Piper's quote. What then is poverty of spirit? It is the sense of powerlessness in ourselves. It is the sense of spiritual bankruptcy and helplessness before God. It is the sense of moral uncleanliness before God. It is the sense of personal unworthiness before God. It is a sense that if there is to be any life or joy or usefulness, it will have to be all of God and all of grace. John then says this. The reason I say it is a sense of powerlessness or a sense of bankruptcy or a sense of uncleanliness or unworthiness is that objectively speaking, everybody is poor in spirit. Everybody, everybody whether they sense it or not, is powerless without God and bankrupt and helpless and unclean and unworthy before God, but not everyone is blessed. I thought that was so good. We're all, we're all hopeless and helpless before God. 
Let only those that know that we find hope and help in the one that God sent finds happiness. Blessed are, happy are the poor in spirit, for they shall. Let me finish. Only sitting here in the kingdom of heaven can we find true happiness in our present condition because, yes, we are poor in spirit, but we're very rich in Christ. We can rejoice sitting here knowing that we are citizens of heaven now and forever, not because what we bring to the table, but because of what Jesus has already brought to the table on our behalf. His kingdom in place of ours. It's the great exchange of the gospel. Our sin for his righteousness. Our hopelessness for heaven. And it's only from here, from there, that we can build upon God's kingdom moving forward in the Sermon on the Mount. You see, the kingdom of heaven is the theme of the Sermon on the Mount. When people ask what it looks like to rest in this world or this realm, the Sermon on the Mount is the answer of what it looks like. So our decision as we hear Jesus preach this sermon over the next three chapters is, Will we follow Jesus into his kingdom or will we remain content just being part of the crowd? That's the choice before us. May we choose wisely because in the end, when every one of us has to stand before God, the only thing that's gonna matter is this decision. It's going to determine how Jesus separates the only two people on this planet, the believer and the unbeliever. The sheep and the goats is what we often hear in the New Testament. God's kingdom people or this world's kingdom people. I want us to pray and then it just seems fitting that we end with a song about the cross. Because it's the only reason we get to be in this place. Guys, do you realize, you do, okay? This is not, this is rhetorical. Do you realize that on judgment day, we're going to stand before this holy God that everybody else had to shrink back from and we will have to shrink back? We're going to stand in the presence of a holy God. And absent from the finished work of Jesus, all we're going to be able to say is, woe is me. Absent from the presence of Jesus, the only thing, I don't even think we'll be able to speak. The only thing we're going to be reminded of is every single thing that distances from any right to be in that presence. That just seems to be the theme of Scripture. When people had their eyes open to who God was, they couldn't even look. The only thing that's going to give us the opportunity to stand or bow and be able to not shrink and not freak out 
not woe is me. It's because of the cross. That's it. You won't get to boast in any of your resume. You're like, well, I got a pretty good one just like Paul. doesn't matter. It's dung. It's dung. Dung, not done. <laughs> our only hope, our only joy, the only way we get to rest here, even in a restless world, is because of the cross. And so we just have this sermon about, oh, man, we're unworthy, and it seems so odd in this culture today. Like, no, we're worthy. Don't tell people they're unworthy. They'll think bad of themselves. God, in God's presence, you will think really bad. No, that's not right. It's all about building people up today. No, God's holy, the holiness of God will tear you down. It goes completely against culture today. But we're not here to beat you down. Man, Jesus has already been beaten down. He already took all that shame, all that blame, all that hurt because of that the cross we have something to boast in we have we have a reason to come boldly into the presence of god scripture says because of jesus father thank you thank you for jesus i don't know what else to pray thank you for jesus without him we would have no footing in your presence. So as we end our time here today, may our hearts be encouraged. God, if there's somebody sitting still in the kingdom of the world, it's okay, man. We're glad they're here. You're glad they're here. May your spirit begin to draw them into yours. And God, aren't, would you comfort them in that it's not that they have to try harder or do better. It's because Jesus has already finished the work on the cross and he died a horrible death for our sins and he arose victorious over sin three days later so that we can sit in this chair so we can sit in the kingdom of heaven and God we can live from victory not for it we're not trying to attain anything this morning we've already gained it not because we brought anything to the table but because of the cross and so with one voice this morning, may we say hallelujah to the cross. Thank you, Jesus. Would you accept our response this morning as we, with one voice, worship you as we sing about the cross in Jesus' name. Let's stand. Mm -hmm.